Today on the Energy Podcast, we've got something a bit different. What's the panel's view concerning the use of natural gas as a transitional fuel? Fossil fuels are not a necessary evil. Why are we having this debate in 2019 when we know about this issue since 1988? At some point we're going to run into a wall, which is material scarcity. What is your opinion on this? We've taken the energy debates to the people who have the answers. There's so much that could be done using technology and harnessing engineering as well. But it's not currently done at the pace at which the negative impact is having on the environment. We gathered a group of international energy experts and put them in front of hundreds of the brightest science and engineering students in the UK and the Netherlands. My question is how the energy transition intends to also embrace the social aspect. In this episode, you're going to hear answers to some of the most pressing questions around climate change and the transition to a lower carbon energy system. Shall we not ban fossil fuels altogether? We'll hear a range of responses from what difference climate change activism is actually having on energy companies to why there's such a perceived generation gap among individuals when it comes to action. And... We'll find out what Shell's very own Martin Wetzler said when asked... Many people believe the only solution to the climate emergency is ban Shell from existence. What is your response, Martin? From strikes by schoolchildren around the world and climate change protesters bringing parts of our capital cities to a standstill, the debate around climate issues has never been louder. But what difference, if any, is it actually making? And how should energy companies respond? I'm Bryony McKenzie, and this is the Energy Podcast from Shell. Today, the great energy debate. Please give a big round of applause for our four panellists. It started with Shell's integrated gas and new energies director, Martin Wetzler, explaining that increased awareness around climate change is leading to changes in behaviour. Increasingly... We see very major corporations come to us. We have a very large uh, electricity, clean electricity business in the United States. And we see big corporations with big brands come to us and say, we need to be voluntarily procure clean energy 24-7 urgently because we worry that our customers will stop buying from us. They don't, um, they don't so like I think it. that societal pressure is, is making change, not just in politics, um, but also with, with people that buy energy. But Martin also believes finding the solution to cleaner energy that people actually want is complicated. I absolutely think business has a big role to play in creating the future. But it does need to produce things that customers want to buy. If we produce things that customers don't want because they're too expensive or they're too far ahead of their time, then we can't live. And and so it's an interplay between society, government and business that needs to get this energy transition going. So there are changes amongst businesses and companies, but what about elsewhere? Paulian Herder, a professor in energy systems at Delft University, says students there have been talking about the energy transition for a while. We have seen this, you know, this problem, it's, it's on the top of our agendas, but it helped us in getting the message out, in incentivizing students to become more active. We are currently have a plan to reduce CO2 emissions of the entire TU Delft and our campus. And I think also importantly, um, it may also have, I hope at least, I have no evidence this is the case, 
that it may also attract more students to the TU Delft and similar universities in energy programs to help us change society. It, it can be a unique selling point, so to say. And I would love to see that the, let's say, action in the outside world on climate and climate change and the, you know, the, the, the feeling that young people have, that it incentivizes them to start programs on changing the world themselves. And that question of who is driving the change was a recurring theme, with many saying there is a glaring generational gap in attitudes towards changing how we make and consume energy. Ozak Esu is an engineer from Nigeria. She explained why young people in particular are so engaged. I think a lot more young people are, uh, I'll speak of myself for example, are more aware of the impact that fossil fuels is having on our environment. Um, some, we appreciate it's brought us this far, like, like Marco said, it's 80% of our energy production is from fossil, but I think most young people will agree that it's time to move on. I think the frustration comes from the pace at which the transition is currently happening, and I think that's why a lot of people tend to um, take on activism as, as part of climate change because the rate at which climate change is happening is not as quick as the transition is happening. A lot more people would like to see more funding for like research ideas and innovation and there's so much on that could be done using technology and harnessing engineering as well within that space but it's not currently done at the pace at which the impact is, the negative impact is having on the environment. So I think that's the space where many young people are. They want to do something about it. They want to, whether it's innovating ideas or just in their own capacity, have a voice to voice that opinion. It's not just young people as well. So I think young people are more passionate because they feel they're going to live longer and experience more of the impact of it. They feel more responsible to be able to push people in leadership opportunities. Young people are not the people in leadership positions at the moment. The conversation moved on to the role oil and gas companies have to play in the short and long term. Here's what Delft University Energy Club, who discuss climate change and debate possible solutions, wanted to know. Companies like Shell and BP are trying to show that they're taking lead in the energy transition. And uh, should we let oil and gas companies take the lead in the energy transition, knowing that they have uh, shareholders' profit maximization on the top of their agenda? Martin Wetzler from Shell was the first to respond. Well, first of all, it's important. People sometimes think of our shareholders as rich billionaires. Mostly our shareholders are pension funds, our, our mutual funds that invest people's savings and that take care of people's pensions going forward. If you look at the pension debate in Europe, of course, lowering pensions is a, is a tough one. Um, and so our dividend is actually funding very, very important um, uh, cash flows elsewhere in the economy. Our challenge really is to scale up the response to the energy transition in an economically um, responsible way. And that's not just our challenge, that's everybody's challenge. The second point that say, you'd say we, profit maximization is at the top of our agenda. That doesn't get you very far if that's, the, if that's your only agenda. We've been around for 125 years by actually serving all our stakeholders, which is our neighbors, where we have our facilities, which is the, the, the populations of the countries we live in, the people that work for us, and also our shareholders. But it's a balancing act rather than just serving, rather than just serving one. Pensions are not often linked to the climate debate, but they were raised in this one, which came as something of a surprise. In a straw poll, the London audience was asked if they would, in theory, be willing to give up some of their pensions in order to fund quicker action on climate change. Most said they would. OK, and London, how, is, how are you in your pensions? 
they basically say it's okay. That's Just great. Do stuff. To tell the pension fund. <laughs> Joe Coleman, Shell's UK energy transition manager, said she noticed a public shift in sentiment that more of us than ever were willing to make sacrifices to help tackle climate change. But then she added that those changes needed to be fair. I think what we're saying, we're talking about the shareholders and pensions, and I think it's great that people want to give something up. We talk about aviation, um, and you know, there's a lot of talk in the UK about we need to stop flying or fly less. We have to be fair to everybody. We can give things up, but, but you know, some people are perhaps more capable of giving something up than others. Um, and we, we, we talked a bit about energy use in places like Nigeria. If you have no energy, you've got nothing to give up. Because if we feel that we're pulling away from our quality of life, people will uh, reject the energy transition. I don't think that's where we want to be. And to her point about flying, or flight shaming, as it's been termed, Ozakesu highlighted the fact that for some societies outside of Europe, the move towards bypassing flying to reduce carbon emissions isn't straightforward. I quite enjoy flying. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up not being able to travel. My parents were saving towards my education, so now I'm able to travel. I like to explore the world and see new places. I fly commercial, don't have a private jet, so <laughs> I, I just have to be honest, to be honest. I, I do appreciate that people are more considerate and thinking about the impact they're having, but I also think about that and I also make savings where I can, but going on holiday, everyone who knows me, I'd be lying if I said I, I didn't enjoy flying planes, so yeah, I, I do fly unfortunately, sorry. Google climate emergency and you'll get 322 million results. There is a call for the response to the issue of climate change to be put on fast forward for a quicker solution. Could it happen? That was one question put to the panel in Delft. So my question is, should the UK's 2050 net zero emission targets be brought forward? To recap, net zero emissions is the point at which a country sucks out as much CO2 from the atmosphere as it emits. Each country has set itself a different year to reach that goal. Some are as early as 2030. Here's Pauline Herder from Delft University. It is almost too obvious to say it's too complicated and it's very hard to speed it up because there is also some inherent, let's say, slowness to innovations. If you need to change the entire energy uh, industry and the entire uh, chemical industry, so we're we're also talking about chemical building blocks for all of our plastics, everything we have here. If you want to overhaul that entire business, that entire industry, it just takes time. You can't do that tomorrow. Inherently, you need to build up an entire new industry to build your electrolyzers, first to test them, to you know, upscale. That takes time and it doesn't help to throw more money at it or more people at it at some point. There's just an inherent time constant to those processes. So moving the 2050 deadline a bit forward or backward, whatever you want to call that, so let's say to 2040 or something, might also be sort of, you know, a, pol- a political statement and not that realistic. Yeah. I can't really say it needs to be 2050 or 2048. I think nobody can say that. Mm-hmm. And what I also dislike about setting this strong boundary at 2050, it suggests that wa- once it's 2050, we're either dead or we have solved the issue. Yeah. And I think it will never be over. The entire tra- transition will always be going on. After 2050, there's 2051. Sure. 
As well as the issue of time, there's the question of identifying the next logical step. Journalist Marco Vischer writes about renewables and energy and had this to say. With energy transitions, we always have to question what are we transitioning from and where are we transitioning to? So if we close coal-fired power plants and replace them with gas-fired power plants, that is okay because gas takes up like half, it's half the CO2 emissions. If we go from um, gas to uh, nuclear power plants, that is even, even better because you have no CO2 emissions. If you replace them with lots and lots of wind turbines, that's also good. We have CO2 emission-free uh, electricity there, but we still need backup energy, which usually comes from fossil fuel-powered plants. For a country like Australia, for instance, going transitioning to solar would be, would be a fantastic thing to do. Australia uses a lot, a lot of coal power uh, because there is so much in the ground there. Um, but there's vast amounts of deserts where, you know, sun is pretty reliable over there. So I would love to see Australians re- make that transition to solar farms. Finally, to perhaps one of the biggest questions of the debate. Can an organisation like Shell ever simply stop producing oil and gas? Here's Shell's Martin Wetzler. Yeah, well, the, the long-term goal is to be the best energy company in the world. Um, and that being the best energy company in the world has for a long time meant being really, really good at oil and gas, because that was the, the, the business. Um, by 2050, that will mean being very, very good at very low carbon energy low carbon electricity, biofuels, hydrogen. Um, and so we want to, we, we clearly need to move from A to B in order to remain relevant. Um, but I think when it comes to the question, um, I believe we have to quickly focus the usage of fossil fuels to those sectors that have, that have find it very difficult to find alternatives. So Such as? That's, well, um, Petrochemicals, for example, need a molecule. You, it's very difficult to electrify petrochemicals in the next 50 years. And they p- produce our medicines, our mattresses, the materials, yes. um, the production of steel, cement, uh, fertilizer, all at the moment and in the foreseeable future critically de- needs oil and gas um, as a result. Aviation fuels. So there's a number of sectors that will, that will probably still be using oil and gas by 2050. There's a lot to be electrified and for elect- electricity to be made clean. And I think that's where also the point on should we bring 2050 forward or not is a slightly, to me, secondary debate. The, the primary debate is how do we move now quickly on what we know that works, which well, is electrification of transport, of heat, and all these things that we can do today with today's technology. So what did we learn from the experts and the audience? It's clear from those who are passionate about taking action against climate change, who stood up in our audience, and the scientists beginning their careers, that the energy transition, that move towards a lower carbon future, is something that needs to be addressed now and not kicked down the road for another generation. And there's personal responsibility, whether people are willing to make changes to the way they live their lives to help tackle climate change. If you listen to the audience... They are, and that feels like a huge shift in thinking compared to even a few years ago. It's also apparent that different countries will make their own decisions on energy based on resources that are reliable and available in their part of the world, whether that's solar in Australia or wind power in the Netherlands. 
and there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. That's it from The Great Energy Debate. You can click on the Shell Energy podcast to subscribe and listen to the other episodes on all things energy-related. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production and I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured and not Shell or its affiliates. I'm Bryony McKenzie. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>